<laughs> yeah, famous last words. Not That's ready, awesome. player one is more like it. <laughs> All right, ready? Let's do the countdown. Okay, everybody, welcome. This week we are doing, uh, no surprise given what's going on in the theater these days, we are going to do Spielberg's 2018 adaptation of Ernest Cline's novel, Ready Player One. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. Um, I saw this a couple days ago and you saw this today. Had you read the book? Yeah, I think I listened to the audiobook, but yeah, I read it like uh, a few years ago, maybe. I think it came out, I, th- I thought it only came out like a couple of years ago, but it looks like 2011. Yeah, 2011. I think I think the actual print book is came out in 2013, um, but I could be wrong. But you had, but you had listened to it. Um, yes, the book. It was unabridged and everything, so I did... Uh, I did see it. And I, mean, I had it. my wife had read the book and she loved it. And I, I read literally the first ten pages and got distracted and never got back to it. So I, I had read the ten pages and so I essentially went into it cold. Hmm. Um This might be the beyond, first time ever that, that I read the book and you didn't read the book. <laughs> it's possible. Um and this is sort of Spielberg's, I guess, uh this is his twenty eighteen entry. Um, I don't know if he has anything else coming up this year, but this is definitely his 28 entry. And so far, it is making gajillions of dollars. Uh, I think it's about to break or has broken $400 million, making it already one of the top films of the year. And we will have to see uh, where it comes out at the end of the year. Any initial thoughts before we do the deep dive? I'm not surprised it's a success already because you could tell there was a buzz from the preview because I saw the preview in the theater. The book was a big hit as as much as being a, a science fiction book can be. It was sort of a crossover, I think, hit for a book. And um, it's a Spielberg film. They spent $175 million just so making it. And... Um, it's has that it has the right buzz and vibe in the uh in the preview. So and it's right yeah. and it was very very heavily marketed. I think the last 5 or 6 films I went to this trailer played. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're not they believe in you got to spend money to make money, right? And this this is validating. <laughs> and they're right. Right. <laughs> they're this, right. They sure are with a film like this, you know, because they pro- the marketing budget was probably a really huge um massive multi yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if the marketing budget was twenty or thirty million dollars. Yeah, I'm sure it was enormous, and uh, but it worked. worked. Yeah. got to give them that. Right, they got to get all the. They got to get everybody to turn to make it into a true box office success. They have to cross over from the 13 year olds, and they got to turn out the uh, at least some people who are um, who grew up in the 80s like us, um, because this movie has the potential to turn them out the way the book did. Right, and I will tell you, though, that I saw this with my kids, um, neither of whom were alive in the 80s or read this book, and they both loved it. They thought it was terrific, and, you know, they know enough 80s references and have seen enough 80s films that they were able to get the big nods and winks that this movie had. Well, the the movie, the the level of dorkiness, um, I would say... 
and sort of pathologic um, cave dwelling uh, s- sort of suspicious uh, body odor reeking dork um, <laughs> retrospective, you know, that worst episode ever, <laughs> right? That has been turned way down from an, from an 11 out of 10 in the book down to like a 1.5 in the movie. But also, I think that the, the culture has changed so much, you know, I mean, since 2011, no, I think since since we were kids in the sense that like nerdy stuff and geeky stuff is so mainstream now. You know, like even the most like muscle bound bodybuilder is playing some video game online or is has some online presence. Like I don't know. Sort of, I, think I guess we're living in a different time. But I don't think computer related. I think you know what what, what makes what makes geekiness more accepted now is um is the hipsters who are basically into details the way that geeks are, you know, like maybe they're not geeky about exactly the same thing, but they're geeky about their, uh, you know, particular type of cordovan leather that their wallet is made out of. Cause it's made by like ex felons in Brooklyn, you know, out of solar power and it's, you know, herb, uh, the, the leather is cured and, and, you know, it's hand massaged with natural herbs grown on a roof so like, mm. you know, that that's a different kind of geeky, but that's that's very much sort of de rigueur now, I think. Um, not quite the same way as kids watching E. T. and playing Dungeons and Dragons, but there's a little bit of an overlap in the intensity of their fandom. And I think that's sort of what's more accepted than it's not sort of specifically computer based in a way. But but the book I think was was much more geeky. Um in the picture. And, and I think that, you know, the, the movie was very well reviewed and very well received, but most of the negative criticism I've seen online comes from diehard fans of the book who feel that it strayed too far from the source material. And I will tell you, my wife read the book, like I mentioned earlier, and, and you know, she said the whole way we were driving home, they changed it so much, they changed it so much, they changed it so much. And people I work with who had read the book had the same comment. Whereas, you know, for me, who came in cold, essentially, like I had no loyalty to the book. Like for me, it was it was a very enjoyable ride. See, I, I kind of had more of a mixed reaction to the book because the book, um, it's, so the, the book is, you could look at the book, at least I did in some ways, as, um basically an extremely um dorky guy who what basically is a stand-in for uh what's his name the guy who created the uh uh geez um who started the uh the the oasis uh, halliday so mm-hmm. you know i mean obviously it's a lot of the author's tastes i'm sure are reflected in halliday's tastes and he's like a super rush fan and he played a bunch of atari and whatever you know all the stuff that's in the book and uh in, in excruciating detail and in the end this guy becomes a trillionaire and maybe he he dies but he lives on and his ultimate victory against society is like pointing the middle finger by basically being able to control all of the rest of society with with his creation and force everyone to bend to his tastes Right, and be interested in what he's interested in and learn about what he loved, et cetera, right. et cetera. So, so it's kind of like this, you know, story of an outcast who gives everybody the finger by sort of saying, <laughs> saying like, you're going to have to, you know, look, look, I, I'm, I'm vindicated in, in the end. And even though, you know, I, I, I never had a girlfriend, um, I'm totally vindicated. And 
there's a really, really strong element of that in the book. And um, the book is so sort of masturbatory about the, the intensity of focus on, on the nostalgia in the book. Uh, and that, that inten- intensity is tiresome sometimes in the book, actually. Um, and, and that's totally taken out of the, the movie to make it sort of a smooth movie. Uh, and that roughness is taken out of the movie as well. That kind of, um, you know, that's kind of what I meant about the, you know, the dorky aspect that was has been detuned mm. to a large extent um, to make it sort of a, a poppy film. Um, but that's not necessarily bad, in my opinion, though. Uh, no, I don't think so. And again, you know, I think Spielberg has modes, right? He has modes and he has phases. You know, this is not Schindler's List. This is not Saving Private Ryan. This is Schindler making a popcorn Spielberg, movie. Yeah. Sorry, Schindler, right? <laughs> That's good. This is Spielberg making a, his popcorn movie that is easy on the eyes, doesn't take a lot of thinking. It's fun to watch. You know, the movie is sort of a, a gigantic version of Where's Waldo as you're sort of recognizing pop culture references all over the place. Right. Um, and, you know, whereas, you know, when you saw Schindler's List, you thought about it for a long time, or when you saw Saving Private Ryan, or, or even, even some of his, you know, lesser films like catch me if you can like there was a lot to think about after you walked out of the theater here not e. so much yeah sure you know and this is this is a a good time movie and you know people walked out of the theater with smiles on their face and you well, know mission accomplished well raiders of the lost ark right that's that's a that's another movie that that's a, also a sort of a, a movie that's Retro. it's candy, you know. It's it's like a, let me take the 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 cereal that he grew up watching, and uh, or or maybe it was a little ahead of his time. But let me he takes that and he makes a, a new fun version with Harrison Ford in it. Right. And, I mean that's that's Lucas and Spielberg and Lawrence Kasdan also doing retro homages to prior media. I mean, you, in, a, in a sense, Indiana Jones has a lot to do with Ready Player One as a, as a sort of a progenitor film. I'm trying to decide if I like Raiders of the Lost Ark better just because I was thir- 12 or whatever, or 14 or something or whatever when I saw it the first time. And, uh, you know, this is 30 years or whatever later. Um 30 something years. I'm trying to decide if that's the reason or if it's not as good a movie. Uh, well, I think, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is genuinely a good film. I mean, it holds up very well. I also say, and I've said to many people at work to near universal condemnation that I really believe that there's only one good Indiana Jones movie and it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it's a, it's a very straight and steep line downhill after that. Wait, who doesn't agree with that? A lot of people, a lot of people. Yeah, but um, they're the same people going to watch, you know, the Transformers, Transformers <laughs> 6, dude. I mean. Um, but, uh, you know, the this movie, um, you know, it takes itself seriously in the sense that it's internally consistent and the characters play their roles seriously. They're not sort of, you know, mugging at the camera and winking at you when things get more and more over the top as the movie goes on. But I think that a huge misstep in this movie is the villain. Um, and the villain is, is so cardboard. Yeah. He's so like, you know, twirling his mustache. <laughs> I'll get you. <laughs> right. He's just you the know, evil corporate like, guy. 
Right. And I mean, how many times do we have to see the evil corporate guy, you know, again and again and again, you know, the, I mean, the, you know, Hollywood loves the corporate guy if it's Steve Jobs or, or someone like that. But otherwise, the corporate guy is always evil. I mean, he's so evil. He even he wears a suit when he goes into the Oasis. That's how evil he is, you know. <laughs> Like his suit has a vest. That's how evil he is. It's like kind it's of a kind weird, of ridiculous. It's a weird looking you suit, know? though. I'll give him that. But you know, it's funny because Cameron and I like Cameron very much. But James Cameron does the same thing. You know, he did it in he did it in Aliens. He did it in Titanic. He did it in um um the the big one where they were. With the, the the giant alien avatar on the avatar. avatar, right? The, the corporate people are always evil and like so evil. You're wearing right. shirts and ties, you know. When everyone else gets to wear earth tones, the corporate people are wearing. Anybody who works for a big company is the you know the the sum of all evil. Like it's it's so tiring. It's such a worn out trope. Like it was the one thing in Ready Player One that really really grated on me. Like like it it it's not enough that maybe. You know the the opponent has a different point of view, or or sees the world differently, or has a different set of goals in mind. He has to be evil, right? Like yeah. it was stupid. No, I totally agree with you. I think he was cardboard. I, I think there was that even the real world entirely is cardboard. Uh, even further than that, I mean, they make a couple of initial attempts to make to flesh out the real world and make it seem scary and unpleasant, especially in the beginning. Uh, and especially yes and no, though, well, the scene well, where I mean, she, they never she really said why the world is so bad. Like no. he gives that little opening That's monologue. There's nowhere to go. It's bad. Like, why? That's my point. What happened? It was cardboard. Yeah. I mean, to me, the only attempts he made and one that was almost made it, uh, making it seem more real uh, or more uh, give you a real feel for the misery um, was when Artemis, uh, the girl, sort of says to him that, you know, her dad died like trying to pay back his debt. And, right. you know, she grew up, she got screwed because of that. And everyone is. And that's what makes the world terrible is basically the the whole system is it's this dystopian system that they have to change. And other than that scene, you know, I mean, the, the trailer stack uh, is not that bad. I mean, it's so nice. <laughs> you know, I mean, I lived... sleep on the washing machine, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've lived in worse places than that trailer. <laughs> And like, you know, and, and then on top of that, like he makes this beautiful opening, you know, I don't, it's like a composite digital shot or like some combination of dolly or crane shots where they, where he's sort of sliding his way down the, the, uh, that whole stack. Right, and the, the, by the way, you know, if you're over like 20, uh, you I clearly, was just thinking like, yeah, if you have a bad hip or a bad <laughs> knee, it's really hard to live in the stacks. Right. You have to be able to basically climb like a, you know, a Marine Corps recruit to get up to more than the second story. Um, so like it's, it's, Private uh, pile, are you on my obstacle? <laughs> Um, so it's, yeah, I, I think they fail off of my obstacle. I think they fail. They fail making the work and that the book was better at that. I mean, the book really, uh, he keeps the book draws a big contrast between the, the, the virtual world of the Oasis and how he can exceed in that. And the his miserable true existence where he is, he's, is really, it's, terrible and he has 
he has no way to succeed in the real world at all. He's entirely uh, screwed. Mm. You know, similar to, speaking of how he's screwed, similar to the evil corporate guy, his mother and the mother's boyfriend are also portrayed in very sort of cardboard, one-dimensional ways. Yep. Uh, even the even the hero Halliday is a little, a little, um, you don't really get to appreciate much about him. I mean, you don't identify much with him when he's supposed to give life lessons about not, uh, you know, go and kiss the girl. And then the, the ironic part is uh, in the end, the last scene, you know, he tells him, you know, that reality is reality. And I guess, therefore, dot, 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 non-reality is non-reality. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. In the end, he tells him that. And then he goes on to win this thing and goes back to reality, quote. And then they, you know, he takes over the the internet oasis and takes and makes it, you know, off limits, closes it on on Tuesday and Thursday. And yet everyone is putting out down their money to see this escapist uh, action film that has very little <laughs> in the way of true substance underneath. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that that Spielberg was very aware of that. But um, I, I found the ending was excruciating to me that 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 the, ending. the third act is definitely the weakest because then they've got to really bring it all back home. I thought that the the first and the second thirds were much, much stronger. And by the end, I thought that they were clearly running out of gas. Now, I don't want I don't, I feel like we're trashing this movie maybe more than it deserves because, again, this is not, you know, this is not Gone with the Wind, right? This is not the Brothers Karamazov. This is Ready Player One. This is meant to be a fun movie. And for the most part, it succeeds and, and it does look great. And it's the if mm-hmm. the CGI is extremely well done in a way that's not off-putting. Like most CGI movies, I can't watch because I find it gets tiring fast, or or it's so hyperkinetic it loses its impact. And they did a good job with it. And for example, the opening race scene is very well done. Um, yeah, that's one of the best sequences in the movie. Uh, the scene at the the dance club is terrific with a little New Order soundtrack mm-hmm. playing over the top. Um, and I have to say, um, spoiler alert, I, I thought that the, the showstopper scene in the whole movie was the bit where they essentially leave the story and, and enter into the world of Kubrick's Shining for about a 10-minute sequence, uh, which I thought yeah, was... Yeah, that was the, a real love, love well, letter, and, wasn't and it? And it's a real homage to Kubrick. Uh, you know, obviously Kubrick yeah. and Spielberg were colleagues and friends in real life. Although you wonder how much they actually yeah. met in person and how much it was just a correspondence or phone calls, considering that... I bet right, you not considering much. that nobody saw Kubrick much. Um, right. But I will tell you that when that scene happened, like, boy, did I sit up and pay attention. Like... It was so well done, and they transposed you so well to the Overlook Hotel and to the world of The Shining, and you could see how they did it. It didn't matter; like you was it just it was so well done. And it, by the way, it I no disrespect to Steven Spielberg, it really made me realize how much better a director Kubrick was than Spielberg, as if I needed reminding of such a thing. But. Well, you know, I mean, Kubrick achieved more with these static, than... long, slow shots than can be accomplished in, you know, hyperdynamic CGI camera with a million things flying around. Like, like those shining shots 36 years later have so much impact, just sort of the way that they are laid out and the composition and the lighting. 
Um, I mean, they purposely use some of his Listen. one point perspective. I mean, it just, right. you know, and it was, you know, that's a daring thing for Spielberg to do because it's, it's, it is, it is sort of a little bit of an acknowledgement on Spielberg's part that maybe Kubrick was a better director. I mean, almost Spielberg is almost saying that in a sense. Oh, I'm, sh- I'm sure. I'm sure that he feels that in many ways. I, I mean, I, I really saw it as kind of a, like a, a love letter to Kubrick or it's, it was more than, it was an homage in the most reverential way. Put it that way. I think he really, it was personal. I really think, think so. And yes, I mean, Kubrick, you know, did more by gluing uh, a front of a big wheel to a, a camp, to a dolly, um, you know, then right then all the cgi with, with in this a hundred million right right i mean that probably cost you know whatever 20 grand to to make that dolly or, or more well knowing kubrick he probably tried 20 different dollies before he found one he liked um and big wheels but uh so maybe it was a hundred <laughs> grand but it still it was a it was a hundred million of cgi right <laughs> That, that it looked and also, than. you know, most most media properties in this movie get a few seconds of screen time, right? Whether it's Battlestar Galactica or, you know, Back to the Future or whatever, you know, sure. they get a second here, a second there. You know, like the DeLorean is featured a little bit, but, you know, the whole yeah. movie Zemeckis. stops. The whole movie stops for this Kubrick bit. And during that Kubrick bit, essentially, there's no other Easter eggs. Everything else is excluded. And you must sort of stop and pay attention to the world of Stanley Kubrick. I, 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 it was for me, it was far and away the highlight of the film. I mean, the amazing thing about that sequence is that he, he point, he uses it to point out how great Kubrick is. You know, it's, it's a love sort of a posthumous love letter and right. And thank you. And uh, right. And he's trying, he's also, taking that nostalgia to sort of point out maybe to the viewers, probably many of whom have never heard of Stanley Kubrick. He's pointing out um, that he's pointing this stuff out with a, in a reverential way. Right. And almost saying, maybe you should go check this out. Yeah. Go see this. Like this is, you know, we're, we're right. We're, we have a lot of throwaways in this movie, but this, you should probably, you should check this out. I think that's what he's saying. Um I think to to switch back to the film and get away from the Kubrick thing just for a bit, I thought that one thing that they did a good job of is the discrepancy between people's online or uh, Oasis personas and the way that they really looked. And, for example, Ty Sheridan, who plays Wade Watts, you know, they kind of make him look a little doughy. You know, like he's like in the in the Oasis, he's a super fit cut looking guy with great hair well, he and looks like the, an anime character you know he's sort right. of right yeah. and then and then and uh and wade watts himself you know he doesn't have a very good haircut he looks a little overweight he's probably eating too much microwave food he's got a little acne you know um that was i thought a good way of of highlighting the difference between the oasis and the real world like i thought that was very very clever and for example olivia cook who plays Artemis is obviously a very attractive woman and they give her the birthmark, et cetera, et cetera. Like they all weren't so great in real life. And part of the point of the movie is that it doesn't matter. It's okay that this is how you really look in real life. And I thought that was actually a good bit. And my, my kids definitely appreciated that angle. Yeah. 
Um, you know, my kids who are online constantly, you know, I, I think in the, I think in the book, um, there were a couple things I, you know, so I think you probably liked the movie more than I did overall, but I, there's a couple things. If I'm, I'm trying to remember the book, I think there's a part where he goes undercover into the big corporation um, where the main character does, uh, Wade goes undercover and they sort of replace that with, uh, with Artemis doing it. Um, right. Being essentially a prisoner in her cube. Right. And, but I think he, if I remember correctly, he does. And it's sort of more involved as a scene. And his job is not just sort of going online. Like he has sort of a cubicle and a regular job where he talks to people on the phone. Like he's kind of like a telemarketer or like a phone operator or something from what I remember. And he lives in like a cubicle. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, like he, you know, he has like a work area and then he has like a little coffin like thing to sleep in. Um, and it again, sort of makes a dystopian future seem more real because it's believable. Um, his lifestyle there is kind of believable. Um, and, and the rationale, it's a little bit of a stretch, but the rationale of sort of, you know, how a dystopian future could have people repay their debts, you know, how you could easily return to an era essentially of debtor's prison, but in a modern way. And instead of being in prison, you basically have, um, you have to work for your debtor in a prescribed way. And you're one of like, you know, a hundred thousand people doing it. Um, mm -hmm. and it makes a, it makes the real world again, seem a little more possible. And that, that, the, 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 the difference when they highlight the difference between fantasy and real worlds, it, it makes the story stronger. Um, in this, in this case, because ultimately, if if the difference is isn't stronger, then their real motivation to win in the end is less consequential because they come to sort of realize, and especially the main character Wade comes to realize that 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 he's that his real purpose and the purpose of the game, as it was put in by um, uh, the founder of the company. Um, God, I keep forgetting everybody's name. Warren Robinette. But, uh, no. No, wait, sorry. Warren Robinette was the guy who made Adventure. Yeah, no, no. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean. Um, Jeez. Halliday. Yeah, Halliday. Jim Halliday. Halliday's purpose, uh, Halliday had a very intricate um, purpose. And in the end, he, he basically, he's trying to change society uh, to something better. And, um, and the, the characters come to realize that. And, and it's true that, that, uh, Samantha, uh, Artemis is, is much more in tune and much more, um, uh, clever in realizing that earlier, um, mm -hmm. than, than Wade is in the book. And so that, that part is better done. And I think that's something they shouldn't have sacrificed to the same extent because, mm. because the movie it, it doesn't take away from the action aspect of the movie or from it being a fun movie, but you know, the movie is a less, it's not as fun a ride because it's less consequential. And there's, it's just, that's why I think the ending falls down because 
you don't care as much as if you sort of, if you participate vicariously in, in this truly needed sort of change to society. And it's done by these, these kids who come to realize what's wrong and how they can fix it. And then they fix it in a way from a truly underdog way by being, by, by being extremely um, dedicated and, and, you know, dedicated to this weird dorky crap, but still dedicated. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I thought that they, I disagree a little bit in the sense that I thought that they hit some of those notes in the film and especially the way that, for example, Wade puts out the call where he gives his real name and he basically says to everyone, here's what we're trying to do. There's that bit at the end where he essentially sounds the alarm across the entire oasis. I thought that, that, I, I don't know. I think that they did a lot of what you're saying, just I, I assume from what you're saying, not to the extent or with the force that it was done in the book. I don't think they gave it, they, they drew a, enough of a distinction because they, the real world isn't fleshed out enough. It doesn't feel consequential enough um, what they're overcome, what they, what they end up doing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, although the book has its problems, I think that is one thing that it did accomplish. It accomplished the feeling of a truly miserable dystopian place and the exaltation of people who figure out that that they may have a place in, they they have a part in fixing it or improving it. Mm. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I, I think you're right, but I don't know. I, I think maybe it was. It's not as such a stark difference. I think between the book and the film, in some ways, I, I kind of felt like everything you're saying was there in the film, just done in a in a more cinematic way. You know, you, you can always convey more emotion in a book, yeah, right, or, or more intensity in a book than you can in a movie, with the exception of maybe a chase scene, right? Um, you know, it's funny because when I was watching this, I was thinking, I bet I'm the same age as Ernest Cline because, like. I mean, I, I I felt like I got every reference. Like, I mean, I was like, even the objects the characters were holding, like you can see somebody holding the pulse rifle from Aliens. You can see somebody holding a blaster from Battlestar Galactica. Like I was just, I was like, yep, yep, yep. Got it, got it. Uh-huh, uh-huh of course, right? Yep. yep, sure, got it. I think you know, the prayer and, is from Excalibur. Right, the prayer is from Excalibur, which I even recognize. Like, remember, I don't, we won't say his name, but remember our sixth grade teacher loved Excalibur. He always talked about Excalibur. <laughs> Um, but, um, you know, that was really good. So it turns out that, uh, without giving away our age, we're within a few months of right. Ernest Klein's age. Not surprising. Um, you know, even down to the point where the kid was playing ColecoVision at the end. Yes. The <laughs> right. version of himself playing ColecoVision. I saw nice the, I saw the joystick and recognized that. And as God is my witness, my right hand is raised about two thirds of the way through the movie. I thought they're going to do something with adventure. Because <laughs> I I remember we had adventure and my neighbor down the street had the Sears version. I don't know if you remember, but Sears made their own sort of off versions of Atari twenty six hundred cartridges. Yeah, and we were both playing adventure right around the same time, and uh, finding that Easter egg was a big big deal. And I and and he like me didn't find it magically. We heard through the grapevine that there was this thing and you know we read about how to find it and there it was and we found it i remember thinking about two-thirds of the way through adventure is gonna be in this movie because it's really the easter egg of easter eggs right and they even mentioned in the movie it's the first easter egg right so and then when it came i was like there it is it's great 
I don't know. But see, but again, for me, right, as somebody in his 40s, <laughs> as somebody in his 40s who was a kid in the 80s, you know, like this was great. And again, for my kids who are much, much younger, I, it didn't really matter. Like they still got enough. And I think that enough of these things, like if my kids didn't recognize the pulse rifle from an alien, it doesn't matter. If they didn't recognize the Battlestar Galactica blaster, you know, or or, or they don't know who, what Gundam is you know what i'm right. saying like they don't care like they know what anime is and they recognize it as some sci-fi weapon it didn't matter right um i wonder if ernest klein is going to write a sequel to this or a prequel you know there's a lot more that they could do in this world he did write another book but i'm not sure i'm not actually sure what the uh what the book was um the one thing that they didn't kind of have it was interesting for all of its 80s nostalgia. They didn't really have home computers, you know? Like, I was kind of waiting for the VIC-20 or the Commodore 64 to show <laughs> up, you know? Yeah. And they never did. Like, they kind of left out that, like, that, like kids who were into video games and sci-fi at that time were into computers, too, you know? And, like, I, I was lucky or unlucky enough, depending on how you say, to have a Texas Instruments 99 slash 4A, which was not a great home computer. But, you know, I was kind of waiting for something like that to show up or your Timex Sinclair, you know, like, where was your Timex Sinclair in this movie? Would have been cool to see it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I remember, by the way, I distinctly remember, like, sitting on the floor of your room and playing some primitive game on your Timex Sinclair. Yep. (laughs) And the worst part was we loved it. Of course. (laughs) You had a lot more computers than I did. You then you you had a TRS eighty. Yeah, remember. I had a TRS eighty, which was expensive. And then time. later on, you had a Mac. And then by the by then, I was in. You know, when we were in school, they had computers in school that we could use. So we didn't have another computer in the home. Yeah, I got a Mac a in college. I was a freshman in college. Yeah, it, they were um, they were really expensive before before that. This this movie's you know just to sort of bring it back to what I'm saying is I think the overall tenor and tone of the movie is really positive. It's a fun ride. And, you know, I think if you are of a certain age or even close to that age, it's a blast. Um, again, I think that the, the ending got silly and they really, really blew it with the villain. I think that's to me the, the biggest error in the film. You know, I, I've said before in the podcast, I always think it is best and the most interesting if the villain's point of view is valid. Yep. Because then all of a sudden, like, if you can see from their point of view, like, then it creates a real dilemma or a real contrast in worldviews. But no one could support the villain's worldview in this. No one. Nope. Uh, it didn't really make sense. And, you know, I still think it's an, ex- you know, even the even the ultimate hero who's, um, uh, the guy whose name I keep forgetting, the uh, um, the founder Halliday? of the, yeah, Jim Halliday. <laughs> Jeez, the, even Jim Halliday, as viewpoint, is not really fully realized. Um, and I, I think that they probably should have spent a little less uh, effort on um, on eye candy. Yeah, uh, you know the the guy who played the the villain Nolan Sorrento, Ben Mendelsohn. He reminded me of the guy in in the Breakfast Club. You know, the evil teacher in the Breakfast Club. Like it was played that way. Like it was that over the top and that extreme. Um, I do want to give a shout out though. I did think that T.J. Miller was great as Irock. Like I like him. I watched Silicon Valley. I think he's very very funny. Um, 
And, you know, just the bit where he's got like this sort of neck issue, you know, like that sort of creeps into his discussions when he's in the virtual world, like, turn this way. Oh, my neck is kind of hurting. Like, he's just, you know, he's basically playing T.J. Miller, but he did such a good job of it. Yeah. Um, no, you're I'll be right. curious to see how much money this makes in the end. And I'll be curious to see if they do something else with this property, a sequel book, a follow-up movie. I can't imagine Spielberg would want much to do with the follow-up movie. Uh, but my, I wouldn't be surprised if they handed this off or they made something animated out of it or did something else with this. There's just, there's too much interest and it's too much fun. I mean, they could sell it to Netflix and do some kind of series. Yeah. Something like that. Um, did you play, did you, you had an Atari 2600. Yeah. Did you play adventure? Yeah, I did the Easter egg too. Um, we, we had, uh, a 2600 and I mean we played that thing literally to the point of exhaustion well, like to. we played that 2600 so much my brother and I and the game to end all games I mean we had like I don't know 20 30 cartridges but the game to end all games was the Mattel Electronics they made a few games for the Atari and they made this baseball game and my brother and I like we would play this baseball game so intensely and you could control all nine players on the field when you were in the I mean it was my brother and I would like literally half the games of baseball would end with us like punching each other in the <laughs> face and rolling around on the ground like <laughs> like it was we played a lot of atari 2600 yeah i mean you'd play so much that there was a plastic part that um would activate the buttons like when you when you turn move the joystick over underneath the little um corrugated or you know rubber black rubber thing. right the the ridged rubber uh flexible thing there was a white plastic pusher that would activate four buttons either by a pair you know to go like you know if you're right, going north right, there, there was one there was one east and then if you wanted if you went northeast if you went you know up right, northeast it, it would hit those two right and they, the little plastic pusher piece would break oh yeah because you were so hard on it right and because you spent like 96 hours you know a week <laughs> um playing and like uh yeah you'd break after a few months of intense um 13 year old uh gaming activity you would break the little under thing and then you'd have to like you know go fix it somehow i don't remember what we did but i remember them you, breaking, well, you went out and you bought I a new you went and you bought another joystick yeah like the toys r us which is now out of business and bankrupt right um the other game, uh, just since we're doing 2600, combat. So the other game that combat. combat was okay, you know, combat came with it. I know, but it was um, so great in the end that you always went back to combat. Well, because it was the most pure game, you're just shooting the other guy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we actually had in the 70s, we had a standalone version of combat before the Atari 2600 came out. I don't know if you remember it. It was green and it had tank control handles. We had that. You played that at my house. But the other, the other game that we played, Oh my God, just forever and ever and ever, ever, never, ever wore out was Pitfall. I mean, yeah, we played Pitfall. a lot of Pitfall. Yeah, and it sucked. I mean, oh no, I disagree. We love Pitfall. Oh, I loved actually, it too, but we won Pitfall a couple times. There was actually a way that you could win it. Like, you actually got to the end and there was no more money to, or whatever points to be had. Like, you could actually win Pitfall. And I remember my brother and I each won Pitfall a single digit number of time out of. You know, uh, with a, when the denominator was, you know, in the thousands or something crazy, we played a lot of pitfall. But you could win it a couple times. Oh my god! Well, see, but that's the point of Ready Player One. Like, you know, these things were so seminal to us. You know, it reminds me of um, Neil Gaiman 
famously said that the golden age of science fiction is when you're 12. True. And you could argue that the golden age of a lot of things, video games, whatever, is when you're 12. You know, this is why Stand By Me is about a bunch of 12-year-olds, right? All these things, like there's something sort of critical in your cognitive and neurologic development when you're that age. Yep. Um, a strange Darth of Star Trek references and Star Wars references in this film. There's one overt Star Trek reference and not a lot uh, else from that. And uh, if there was Star Wars in this movie, I don't remember it. Disney probably would have charged him. <laughs> also, no Blade Runner. Did you notice that? So apparently uh, they were they were denied permission to use Blade Runner because Blade Runner 2049 was in production at the same time. Yeah. And Spielberg couldn't get the rights. I'm not kidding. He couldn't get the rights to Close Encounters. <laughs> he wanted something from Close Encounters and he couldn't get the rights because he didn't have them, ironically. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. And if Spielberg can't get the rights, oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, there's something unjust about that. I mean, you know, that, that'll that somehow come back. I mean, Spielberg's, I think he's like, he's around 70 now. But, uh, yeah. you know, if he keeps making movies for a while, somehow, whoever owns the rights, he'll get them back at some point. Right, and bankrupt that guy. <laughs> there's some, whatever company that is that owns the rights, I mean, he's going to basically, you know, they're going to need something from him at some point. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um. We should wrap up in a minute. Um, by the way, it does kind of make me want to bust out the old... We, we don't have a 2600, but we bought... Years ago, we bought a 2600 emulator. I'm sure you've seen those. Yeah. You just plug it into your TV. It's like it, The joystick is the CPU now, yeah. and it's got all the games built in. Yeah, so it costs we bought like, that for our kids. It costs like 10 bucks. <laughs> I know. It's incredible. Yeah, we bought that for our kids um, a couple years ago, and they loved it. All right, we should wrap. Um, any last thoughts on uh, Ready Player One? Um, no, I'd say if, if you did like it, I'd read the book. If, you know, if you're, if you like the, if you haven't read it and, and you like them and you like the picture, I'd, I, I probably would read the book. Yeah. I'm literally looking at the book right now. It's on the shelf in the room that I'm in. So here's, here's one last question I'll leave you with. Where is my TI-99 4A? Where is your Sinclair right now? Like, think about it. Like, it must exist somewhere, even if it's in a landfill. Like, where is it? Where are they? They could have gotten recycled, or they could be in a landfill. Ground up. I don't know. Like, I don't even know. I don't even remember throwing mine away. I don't know what happened to my TI-99 4A. I know. That's what happens. I know. It's out there somewhere. That's why it's probably worth, you know, like $9 now. Right for the rare earth metals instead, that are in it. Instead of zero. Because <laughs> it's rare enough. All right. Let's wrap there. All right. See you next All time. Right, we'll see everybody next week. Thanks. Bye.